When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thanks for listening to Performance Anxiety. This week's guest is Chris Maxwell. He's lived more musical lives than most. Starting off on a guitar with no strings, he moved on to the pop band The Gun Bunnies. Then he moved to New York City and got a job booking acts for the famous club The Knitting Factory. From there, he joined the alternative scene with the band Skeleton Key. After one critically acclaimed album, he moved on to the world of TV music, recording themes for Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations and Bob's Burgers, among others. He's back to writing music for himself and has a new album out soon, but he's not your typical singer-songwriter. So check out New Store Number 2. Follow Goathouse Studios on social media. Follow us at Performance ANX. Subscribe, rate, review, share, and get a load of Chris Maxwell. Hello, this is uh, Chris Maxwell, and um, you're listening to uh, Mark Shea and Performance Anxiety. Uh, Pick up my new record, New Store Number 2, on Max Recordings. What do you say after that? <laughs> Tell me where you are again. I am in Virginia, in Winchester, Virginia. So I'm about oh. 75 miles due west of D.C. Oh, okay. All right. Home of Patsy Klein. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I had a revelation. I wanted to move back to the South today. I, I, I live, you know, living in Woodside. I'm from Arkansas originally. Yeah. And uh, I was um, listening to the Bitter Southerner, which is a, uh, do you know that podcast? No. He's a really interesting um, um, Southern podcast, uh, po- not just podcast. He also does a magazine and Okay. Um, uh, interesting, but I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I, I like the South. Yeah, I lived in Alabama for 10 years. My wife was you know, lived there her entire life until we moved up here. And uh, all three of my kids were born down there. So it's, uh, it's, I, you know, it's got, for me, it's got its great, good points and bad points. I, I lived in New Jersey for, you know, 13 years, went to college in Rochester. Lived in Virginia, you know. Part part of my child was was in Virginia, so born in Texas. So I was just been all over the place, and I've always liked the how far south Virginia is, but how it also has a little bit of the north in it. So. Right? Yeah, I lived in Waynesboro for a summer. My um, um, my 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 dad lived in in uh, my mom and my dad separate, got divorced when I was. Uh, like basically when I was born. So oh, wow. I, I <clears throat> ended up spending one summer with him in Waynesboro, uh, which I think is not too far from Richmond. I think um, you're right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I think it's more Southern part of Virginia. Uh, yeah. From, right. Not totally sure, but, uh, yeah, you know, and we, I, I spent three months there and, um, uh, didn't, you know, I was really young. I don't have much memory of it, but yeah, yeah Virginia's Virginia's interesting because it's got so much history, and it's there's a two different sections of Virginia. There's Northern Virginia, which is like Fairfax, Loudoun County, um, Arlington, just out just outside of D.C., and then there's yeah, everything else. And it's just it's it's funny because it's like Northern 
Northern Virginia is where everybody who works in D.C. lives because that's the only people that can afford to live there. And then Northern Virginia, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Loudon is like one, one if not the wealthiest county in the country, or something. It's, it's insane, and it everything else is completely different. People, people from the rest of the state don't trust those people because a lot of them are transient. You know, they 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 come in for whatever right. administration is in, or you know, whatever temporary uh, government contract job they've got, and then in you know four to eight. 10 years are gone. So right. Yeah. It's an interesting it, spot. Yeah, that, that is interesting, especially in these times. Uh, the, the level of trust on, on our government is at an all time low. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. um, yeah, if your neighbor is, uh, is, as a politician, you're probably oh. not super psyched about that. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Oh, God, excuse me. Sorry about that. You got a cold? A little bit of one, yeah. I'm just uh, trying to fight it off. So, what you drinking there? Uh, makers and some bitters. That's what I could use right now to knock out this chest congestion I've got. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a healthy drink. Oh, I've got, if you, um, I'll tell you what, if you like that, I'm doing a, an episode here real soon. And if you look down at all on the recent guests I've had, you'll see uh, Chef Selena Tio. Yeah, she, she was on uh, one of the finalists for uh, let's see, it was Top Chef Masters and Iron Chef America, and oh. she's got a a restaurant, a couple of restaurants in Kansas City, and her bar has got three hundred and fifty different types of whiskey, two hundred and fifty of them are bourbon. So wow, so yeah, she's coming back <laughs> on in a couple of weeks, and and uh, I gave her a list of of music, and she's picking some of her own favorites. I'm picking some of mine. Got some suggestions from some prior guests and all. She's matching about 15 songs to different bourbons. Wow. So that's going to be fun. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so. Yeah. But I'm anxious for that one. So if you're a fan of whiskey, bourbon in particular, that one will be fun. Yeah, yeah, and I I am. So, yeah, that's (laughs) good to know. So thank you again for coming on. I really do appreciate it. It's uh, I've been listening to the new album. Uh, oh, great. Two, and I was comparing it to uh, a skeleton key. Oh, right. And it's just, it, it's 180 degrees. It's it's crazy. And I, I definitely want to learn more about how you did that transition. But I want to learn more about how you got into music in the first place. So you're, yeah, you're from Arkansas. Yeah. When did you start getting into music? Was it was your parents? Your and you said you earlier that your parents divorced when you were really young. Did your was your mom playing a lot of music in the house? Um, yeah, we definitely had music in the house, and um, uh, you know it's funny because I was reflecting on uh, on some on some music uh, uh, today. Uh, on, on, um, I was working on another, on another project, um, and, and doing some writing about, uh, my experience with vinyl and, and, uh, one of the things that, you know, came up in my memory was some of the records that if you're, if you're of my generation, you know, you, your first experience with music is going to probably be your parents' records that they have laying around. And, and, um, and so, you know, uh, you know, fortunately they had, my mom was a real young mother. And so my music, the music I grew up with was what was, uh, she was 19 when she had me in 64. So there was there, you know, we were listening to, you know, the Beatles right off the bat. And then, right. uh, she was into, you know, Joni Mitchell records and Sonny Rollins records and, oh, wow. um, you know, we uh, w- there wasn't a lot of jazz, but there was some Ella and Glive in Berlin and and some of those records. And so, yeah, that was my initial sort of um, excitement around around mu- you know music. I, I I but I I don't think I was any different than anybody else at that point. You know, in terms of just like enjoying music you just there wasn't a lot to do so you know one of the things you did was you know put a record on or in some time in some cases an eight track cassette, <laughs> which uh 
which was also um, a part of my you know experience growing up too. But um, we weren't heavily music oriented as a family. So uh, other than just you know listening and um, it some point I think I just discovered the guitar and around like 11 or 12 years old and and I you know for whatever reason I just dove into that really hard yeah well it's it's a great instrument to do that with especially growing up around that time you know you, you go up around the, the Beatles you got George Harrison you know Jimmy Page is around that time Jeff Beck all the you know all those guys coming yeah. up in, in their first band the Yardbirds and all I mean, they changed the face of music. So, and I, well, I, the the thing that I I actually the, my 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 transformation moment is 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 it's it's kind of funny because we were a member of the Columbia House Music Club. <laughs> um, so you know you you get you like what for a penny you get you know you get like twelve I can't albums. What the, what, I can't remember what the, how that worked, but it was something ridiculous. Like for a penny, you get, you know, like a, a year's worth of records or something crazy. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. And, um, so they would send you a, they would send you an eight track cassette a month, one, one a month and you could choose it. Or if you didn't choose it and you're a part of the, of that club, then they would just send you whatever they decided they would send you. Yeah. The, the album of the month or something album of the month so uh i was it's probably like 1970 i think 77 78 something like that and i we had just gotten peter frampton the frampton comes alive oh wow and uh i, I remember they put the they put that eight track cassette in and, and i was you know i don't know i was probably 10 years old 11 years old and i was like what is everybody cheering about what is all the what are all these people yelling about and then my mom was like because peter frampton's just playing guitar and they they're so into it and i was like well shit man i want to do that <laughs> so i was like god damn that sounds like fun and so <laughs> so she 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 we weren't so well off at that point so she had she had a guitar, but this sounds ridiculous, and I and I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's honest to God truth. She didn't have a she, she the only guitar she had was that that she owned was a broken acoustic that had no strings on it, and she said, "Well, this is you know, well here's a guitar. Uh, it doesn't have any strings on it, but you know, it, you know, you can mess around with it." Okay. So, so I, what I did was I learned where all the notes were on the guitar if it had had strings on it, and then, uh, wow. she, and it, it, I'll, I'll, the not not all in the first position. So right. I learned where I was like, here's where all the notes are in the first position. You know, how about getting me a, a guitar now with strings on it? So, so that was the. Uh, I, I passed the first. It was like a like a, a Miyagi kind of a wash on wash off yeah. situation. <laughs> I've done the theory without the actual strings. So yeah, now let's 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 get some actual playing in here. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, oh so it, worked, it, it it ended up working out. They, they they got me a guitar and and then I was off and running. Wow. I I have never heard anything any remotely <laughs> like that story before. <laughs> So when did you start playing with other people? Uh, play? Did you? Uh, I mean, were you playing throughout school? Or did you? Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty quickly. I, I had a a really fast ramp up. I I, I I was one of those guys, you know, that you know you, you hear guitar players talk about, you know, you know, practicing whatever eight hours a day or whatever. And I right. I was one of those guys. So like, you know, uh, you know, I'd come home from school at four o'clock and then basically, you know, I would just go until, you know, you know, until I had to go to bed at night. And, and so within the first year of, of learning guitar, uh, this also sounds completely ridiculous and, and unbelievable, but I started teaching at the guitar store that I had was taking lessons from. 
I walked into the store one day after school and the owner of the store said, uh, your teacher, Danny, has left uh, just kind of unexpectedly, but he seems to think you're good enough at this point to go ahead and take over all of his students. Wow. So, <laughs> which let me make that let me make let me let me make it this clear i was not that was that was not the truth <laughs> these te- but, these students had strings on their guitars <laughs> yeah the, everybody had strings and it, uh it, it was really uh it was kind of funny but i ended up teaching there for the next like until i was out of high school. So I went from the time I taught there from, I was like 12, 13 years old, actually 13 until I was out until I was out of high school, um, at, at this music store. Um, and, um, yeah, I, so, but I, I was in bands right off the bat pretty quickly. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, I was, you know, it's uh, Southwest Little Rock where I grew up was, a uh, is, um, was, um, uh, it was a lot of a lot of pickup trucks, a lot of uh, gun racks in the window. Um, yeah. You know, you you. It's it was a it, you know I I love it and and I I, I loved I loved where I grew up um, and I love the people I grew up with. Um, the culture is something unto itself like it's it's you know living in the northeast now it's it's sometimes i feel like i'm in a foreign country compared to where i grew up but yeah i know exactly what you're talking about yeah it's <laughs> it's it, it was an interesting place and there were a lot of challenges in terms of uh, culturally there that uh, i was aware of even as a young kid you know like you know dealing with racism and and um a lot of the things that you know in the bible belt the things that you have to deal with but right. um but uh you know i i got a band together and you know we we learned a bunch of leonard skinner songs and we're off and running there you go now, <laughs> now being in arkansas i don't know, I don't know if you if, if they like you playing uh sweet home alabama they love anything like that. Yeah, like, are you kidding? Uh, no, uh, and uh, as long as you play it good, you know you you, yeah. know, you really you don't want to you don't want to screw uh, screw that up. As long as you don't uh, play it during the uh, Arkansas Alabama game, you're okay. No, no, then you're okay. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, was singing always part of it for you? Did you start was that right off the bat? You were singing and playing guitar. Um. Yeah, I was I, I early on, you know, struggling with that, trying to figure it out. Um, you know, the singing for me was has always been a, um, you know, I'm a I, I like to, you know, say, uh, you know, as a singer, I'm a stylist. You know, I I, <laughs> I, I do what I do, and I, I I try to get the hit the right notes, and you know, uh, but you, you're not, I'm not, nobody's going on, uh, you know, any kind of talent show. Uh, with my voice, but you're not going to be the uh, next the masked singer. Yeah, no, <laughs> not going to happen. But you know, uh, growing up and hearing people sing uh, all different kinds of things, I realized you know the content was could trump the the vocal aspect of it. You know, and the, the honesty you convey and whatever you're trying to do through your voice, as long as um, as long as there's something going on there. Uh, uh, then you know you can you know you can have a you can have a, a very interesting voice and get away with it. Well, I definitely want to. to I've got some thoughts on that, but I want to do, touch on that later because I still want to find out some more about you because you end up in Memphis working with uh, Jim Dickinson. Yeah, big star, Rolling Stones. I mean, how did yeah. you how did you end up getting hooked up with with Jim? Uh, Jim was a um, was, is also a Little Rock native. Um, um, and he, uh, um, that wasn't really the connection. I mean, uh, the little rock thing was really more of a coincidence, but, um, it might've helped at some point in making a connection with him. Cause I think he probably had a soft spot for anybody from little rock, but, um, uh, he was, um, um, uh, we had gotten, my band, the Gun Bunnies, at that time, which was in the late '80s, had uh, kind of moved through the ranks 
um, we played South by Southwest when probably the first or second South by Southwest there ever was and played it probably for the next five or six years after that Um, And um, and I it was at that point I, I had two bands playing South by Southwest. I, you could you could anybody could get in if you were if you had a good band you could get into South by Southwest. There was no industry the way that it, the, the, the kind of industry that it is today. Right. It was really a bunch of bands getting uh, getting invited to play, submitting a tape, them reviewing it, and then. Uh, it was a real honest to God music festival for, you know, for a bunch of upstarts. Okay. And yeah. And I literally got signed at South by Southwest, um, which I don't even know if bands that even happens now at this point. I think it's, it's more like, um, you're premiering your, your album. It's Lady Gaga is playing South by Southwest, but yeah, it's going to be ridiculous. At the day day I did it, you know, you know, it was, uh, uh, that was the kind of thing, but we would got we kind of moved to the next level, um, and um, we, there was a lot of interest in us. And this is before we got signed. And there, my manager at the time, who was based in Memphis, said, "You know, who would you want to produce your band? Like, you know, if you had your choice." And my choice at that time was, I said, "Well, either T Bone Burnett or Jim Dickinson." And uh, Good names. Yeah, good names and 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 even good names. Even uh, uh, I mean, T Bone's uh, T Bone in 1989 was a lot different than T Bone today. That's a different character completely. Right, right. Not the not the same deal. And in fact, Dickinson, I I chose Dick. I met with the T Bone people, but the the uh, Dickinson's Big Star Three was and and the replacements pleased to meet me and also his uh toots toots in memphis record um uh green on red i mean there was just there was just a lot of stuff there uh that rang true for me and uh you know it just he just and when we met him it was just like holy shit man this guy is is such a character, you know, I mean, as a, for a producer, you want to, you want a producer to be somewhat of like a, an insane Sherpa, you know, like, uh, some, you know, crazy ass shaman guy. And and he was definitely that. And, um, yeah, I mean, in the end, I, you know, that it's a shame because the record itself for that, for that, that, uh, never, it did not, he didn't bring that cr- insanity to that record. He, yeah. that record was a little bit of a disappointment for, for all of us. We were kind of a rowdy, you know, post-punk, uh, you know, replacements, Arkansas version of that, that, right. you know, kind of a bunch of young guys that were just, you know, sloppy and, and trying to write good songs. And I think we did write good songs, but you know, it, there was the execution was definitely, um, um, spirited, you know, it was, uh, and we didn't really capture that. We captured some kind of other, uh, I think Jim wanted to try to make a record that, that was successful for him. And, and, uh, uh, yeah. and I think he thought my songs might've done that. And he, he ended up kind of like, uh, castrating the whole process, but uh, but I, okay. I learned a lot from him. He was a, he's an ins- you know, amazing guy. And I learned I, I, the stories that I, I you know that I uh, <laughs> that told us. You know, the experience of working with Jim was I'll never regret that. It was an amazing experience. Oh yeah, I mean the, the guy's legendary. So yeah. so how long were you in Memphis before you ended up going to New York? I moved to New York in 94, so I was almost okay. 30 before I moved. I, mean, I was in the South, you know, for a while, and then moved to New York in 94, and really hit the ground running. I started working at the Knitting Factory, um, which was uh, kind of a dream job for me. 
uh, just booking bands. It, it was kind of a, uh, an, an amazing way to get up to speed on what was going on in, in the Northeast. And, right. and I, you know, back then, you know, you got to remember back then, you know, it's like you just didn't have the kind of, um, the, the access that you have now to everything, you know, through the internet, it just didn't exist. So, you know, regional stuff was, you know, things really gestated in these little areas. And so moving to New York was a completely new experience. And, and I was lucky to, uh, to land a, land a gig there. Yeah. And it's such a, and you know, it's such a location. I mean, the knitting factory is legendary. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to remember who I think I saw either, either Reverend Horton Heat or Juliana Hatfield there. I don't remember which one, but I know I saw somebody there. Yeah, I don't remember exactly who it was. Well, either one of those could have easily have played there for sure. I worked at both uh, the 47 East Houston, which was the original club, and then they moved to Leonard Street in Tribeca, and I moved and I worked there for a little bit too. But yeah, um, yeah, it was a. That was that was pretty incredible because I met a lot of people. <clears throat> people had to, you know, I I had to deal with people like John Zorn and you know Mark yeah. Repo and uh, you know Diamond Gallas and all them, oh you know, my like gosh. so many so many incredible people. Um, Diamond man, that must have been crazy. Yeah, and it was just a great education for me to to come from where I came from and and then suddenly be. And I kind of lied my way into the job. Oh, really? I think I say that now. Enough, enough years have passed. Michael Dorf is probably okay with that. But <laughs> I just sort of made up the fact that I knew any of who any of these people were, and <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I think I had one Lounge Lizards record was the, like the only thing I kind of basically knew about what was going on in that downtown New York scene. So I I kind of bullshitted my way in there, and then I I had to just do a crash course on it. Oh my gosh! So now at that point, were you still were you playing in bands, or were you looking to be in a band? Well, I moved there with a, with a with a label deal. My first band had been on Virgin Records, and the the uh, Lorique Weymouth, who was actually Tina Weymouth's brother, had signed us to Virgin, and he had left Virgin and was um, starting an independent label. And I made a record in my bedroom in uh, Arkansas that I moved to New York with in my pocket to to hand over to them wow. to start my new life in New York with this new record, new label, the whole thing. And as soon as I landed there, they were also going to give me a publishing deal, a few thousand bucks to like get started. Wow! And as soon as I landed, they dissolved and there was it didn't exist anymore. Oh, so. so Jeez. I had to scramble. Yeah, it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of a, a shock, and I had to. Yeah, I bet. But I, I I had the I had the record in my pocket, and I I handed it out to a bunch of people, and people dug it. You know, just uh, just sort of word of mouth, and um, in in Lower Manhattan, I got a, a few uh, right off the bat. Kind of got a few uh, a little bit of interest, and started playing places like Shanae and. Uh, oh, CB's yeah. gallery and um, and it was probably at uh, you know two two very important gigs for me early really early on in the process was Shanae playing there and uh, Warren Blowdow saw me play um, and he turned me on to, uh, he turned Eric Sanko who was the Lounge Lizards bass player and he was starting a band called Skeleton Key and then that was that's how i got my entree into that okay and um and then uh i played a a fairly important gig for me at that point at cb's gallery um with a bunch of amazing uh knitting factory people that sort of helped get me raise my profile there a little bit and and you know yeah it was i was kind of off and running fairly quickly so when you when you joined and, and started playing with Skeleton Key, how did you guys decide you wanted to play Garbage? That's because you, you had a per, you had a drummer, and then you had a percussionist who played things like uh, let me let me look here, um, film reels, uh, yeah. a red wagon, 
yeah pans propane tanks yeah propane tank yeah the propane tank was tough crossing a board like crossing the border like into canada (laughs) you it's uh that was those were that was a tough one but yeah that um, i can't imagine why yeah yeah that was uh that was completely and totally eric senko's uh vision um um and skeleton key itself was really the vision of 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 eric's um and um he he was uh he had a really he had a very clear idea of of what he wanted and one of the things he wanted was um this kind of junk percussion as a part of it and i think that was probably you know inspired by you know um you know tom waits and and um i can't think of the guy's name michael blair uh uh the percussionist for for weights you know oh okay yeah who used a lot of junk in his kit that sound of a of like an like an early industrial kind of machine like steam punky kind of machine that's just like you know like gears grinding and uh you know it was a it was a cool thing. What made it cool was is the 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 guy that we found to do it um, that that Eric found was Rick Lee, who was an is is an insanely gifted musician and and could can play anything and and his approach to playing junk percussion and the way that our drummer Steve Calhoun complimented it was nothing that anybody could have really uh written out on paper and designed it it just when those two guys got into a room and then eric basically said i kind of want you to do this what they ended up doing was so mind-blowing that we just were like holy shit (laughs) Uh, it was a it was live that band was was i think maybe you know, it was definitely the, the the most incredible live band I've ever been in, and and the um, uh, it was an exciting, really really exciting band. It was an exciting time too. I mean, you, the the feeling I get from listening, go back and listening to Skeleton Key, is almost like a cross between like an Einstein Neubauten and Primus. Yeah, well, Primus. We toured with Primus in Europe, and and. Uh, and yeah, no doubt that 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 was definitely that was uh, you know talk about playing junk. You know when you're yeah. lighting you know 50 gallon drums on fire and, and banging them with a sledgehammer or whatever. You're you're uh, uh, we didn't invent any of that. You know that was that was all, that was already being done. What 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 I think we did sort of come up with was was put, figuring out how to make weird pop songs uh, kind of like. Uh, put that element into these these little three-minute pop songs uh, that yeah. was a, a pretty interesting mix and i and, I, and i'm uh, you know i think that was a that was what was so unique about that band what i like about it a lot is that it, it's, you know you do have that primacy kind of sound of the music but vocally it's it i mean it's and lyrically it's just, it's not as goofy as Primus, Primus was a silly band. They are yeah. a silly band, and and they're you know they know they're a silly band, and and now some of the lyrics are interesting, and the song titles are are pretty wild, but you know you, you there's some effort into into singing it. You know, I mean, like you know, songs like I mean, one of my favorites is Vomit Ascot. That that song is amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's the that's the junk percussionist. That's yeah. that's Rick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a cool band because you know one of the things I, I insisted on because I had something going at that point for myself, and I was the same band, not the junk percussionist, but Steve Calhoun, the drummer, and and Eric played with me in my own solo thing. So I had my own solo band. Mm-hmm. 
we I probably only did two couple of gigs like that two or three gigs and then and then we had skeleton key so we had two different things skeleton key took off immediately it was it, it sort of it was just it was such a cool concept and such a fun thing to see and i really loved playing guitar i but one of the one of the caveats was that you know you know we all get to write we all get to you know we all get to be a part of this creative process or i don't want to be a part of it and you know eric was a benevolent you know leader and he um he allowed all that to happen and we got some really cool stuff out of rick and um amazing ideas from from steve the drummer and and um and then i wrote a bunch of songs myself and sang them and you know i had figure out how to make those songs my sort of weird pop mind <laughs> which i was really coming from more like a power pop like who's do uh sugar you know that kind of world uh, before that you know like the replacements and big star and that yeah. kind of thing so i had to try to make that fit into this industrial kind of um never metal but like heavy rock sound that i had to sort of figure out how was i gonna you know wiggle one of my songs into that (laughs) space and it was it was it was a fun challenge and and, you know i i i i I still think that stuff came off you know really well i remember the band from back back then and it was really cool going back and and revisiting some of it because I, i i like it more now than i did back then so it's it's yeah. <laughs> really cool stuff, and uh, I do have some bad news because I did discover that in 1999, while en route to a show in Antarctica, um, Skeleton Key were involved in a fatal plane crash. Uh, apparently, Eric was forced to eat you and Rick Lee, and he said <laughs> you were okay, but Rick was a little gamey. So, <laughs> so just to update you, I know it's been a few years now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I blacked it out. <laughs> I don't, remember, I don't remember that. You know, yeah, I, re- I repressed it. So yeah. All right. So, how did you start getting into doing music for TV? Was that after Skeleton Key, or did was that start occurring? Yeah, during it. That was after. Um, we had done a, a pretty amazing. Um, remix record off the first skeleton key record um it's fantastic spikes through balloon uh we capital allowed us to spend some money hiring a bunch of really interesting people to do remixes for our for the record i i would urge you know, if anybody's out there was is a you know a skeleton key fan, it's, it's just try to track down the remixes because there was uh, Dan the Automator, um, T Ray from Cypress Hill. Oh, cool. Um, DJ Spooky, um, Christian Marclay, who's just like an insane, um, incredible uh, turntablist uh, artist. Um, just a lot of uh, very, very interesting remixes uh, from that record. I, uh, not a, it, it's a shame that that didn't get more attention because it was a very, very cool thing. But um, one of the remixes, uh, we let a friend do one um, just sort of as a freebie. He didn't ask for any money. He was just like, well, we don't have any money. We've spent it all. But if you want to just try one, go ahead and try one. Right. And he did it. And it turned out to be the best remix of the whole thing. And we Ooh. were all kind of shocked and stunned. And it, he was, a, he was a, a friend of all of ours, uh, or mine and Steve Calhoun's the drummer. Who's, Steve was from Denton, Texas. And, and he had been in a band called Brave. Or he had been in a band called Little Jack Melody. And friends with... Uh, this band Brave Combo, who this person Phil Hernandez had played with, and so we were. Phil had moved to New York from Texas, and we all knew each other. and And when I heard what Phil had done, I was so impressed with 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 his remix that I just had an epiphany that I was just like, I don't, I don't think I want to be in a rock band doing this. I think I would rather be 
doing this other crazy weird thing. And this is, I got to think this is like 1998, uh, maybe. Okay. So uh, before you were, you died and were eaten. Before I was, before I died and was eaten. Yeah. Okay. And he, around that time, um, there was so much cool stuff going on. It was like post, post beasties, uh, dust brothers kind of world where, you know, Beck was making, you know, it was Odelay and um, sampling had kind of moved from, you know, uh, the hip hop world into this other kind of like crazy, you know, art world. You know, these bands that we hung out with and people that we knew and friends with, like Chibamato, you know, you go see them and you're, uh, and Soul Coughing is another example. Oh, we played yeah. those guys. So we, we, we would go see like Soul Coffin and we would even, you know, open for those guys and, you know, um, Mark the samplist and was just doing incredible stuff. That just seemed like a completely new, interesting, weird thing. And I, I wanted to jump on that. And, and I told Phil, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm done playing, you know, in this loud rock band. I think I want to. I want to do some other weird stuff. And, <laughs> and um, we, and this was also at the very same time of the home recording uh, kind of revolution uh, where up to that point, Pro Tools was just unaffordable uh, for, for most musicians. And suddenly there were, there were these, you know, audio interfaces you could buy and you could hook up a computer to it. And that's what I did, and I got that, and we started, we started doing remixes and producing uh, uh, bands on the Lower East Side, and and then out of that, we we you know just as a necessity to survive, um, we we kind of migrated our whole thing into you know film and TV, and then I then then we <laughs> we're still doing that, and and, and you know it's it's Man. been great. So how did, how do you get that connected? Do you just submit things to representatives and say, hey, here's a 30-second clip? Here's, see if yeah, you don't fit you know, with anything. You know, you know it's, that, that's what's, that's what's kind of great. Be, I feel like a little bit like Zelig, you know, like I was kind of at the beginnings of a lot of different <laughs> things. You know, like a, um, and I was at the beginning of that little revolution and that, and you could, you could just literally just make a, a uh, you know, burn a CD of a bunch of, we, we would get so crazy high and just make the weirdest sounds uh, literally for five days a week for like six or seven hours. We just sit in a room and just like uh, nobody was, pay we didn't have jobs and we were just like making weird sounds. I don't know how he was surviving. I was still getting like a little bit of money to live on through Skeleton Key and just sort of making this weird stuff. And, and we, you know, you'd send it out and give it to, um, uh, you know, a few music houses. And um, it, it just was an innocent point, like where it hadn't flooded yet with not everybody had a laptop with right. reason on it or um, – and it was really early, early days for that. So what we were making was so weird and baffling to these people. They were just like, I think they understood that that's where everything was going. And we were kind of already there a little bit. Right. And they wanted a little bit of, uh, of that thing. And that's kind of how we did it. We just, you know, basically sent out, you know, little CDs to a bunch of people and, and um uh and fortunately we 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 still retained our connections to the friends and the and the people we still worked as artists and, and thought of ourselves as artists and not capital a but you know little a just just <laughs> doing the just wanting to make cool shit you know we weren't yeah. really interested in like you know getting rich making doing commercial music or working for film and tv uh, we just saw it as a way to like, you know, supplement this other cool stuff we were doing. And, okay. you know, we, um, and we continue to do that. And I think that having that sort of, um, as being a part of our MO really did help 
our development and our uh, evolution because we because of that, I think we ended up finding some really cool people to work with, and uh, and Bob's Burgers was probably you know the end result of that. We also did one of my favorites that I've been listening to for years, which is uh, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations. Mm. That that is such a cool intro. It's just it's so simple, but it's it's so noisy, and I love it. No reservations. Oh yeah, that was so cool. Yeah, yeah. We had, we we got to bring in John Spencer's Blues Explosion for that, and then oh awesome. Uh, they were in. Australia, I think, and we got and we call we somehow got a hold of them. We're like, hey, we you know, Bourdain wants us to do the, a theme song, uh, and you guys can you guys do something, and then we'll 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 cut it up and 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 make something cool with it. And they they did. They they recorded. They they wrote the song and sent it to us, and then we we did some production and. That's definitely a fun little moment, and then did a bunch of That's score awesome. for him. Well, and then I got to go. He t- he took us all out to dinner and to lay all and oh, wow. uh, with the blues explosion, and, and and we got plowed at at, at lay all, and that, that was <laughs> that was a fun uh, that was a fun night. Oh, bet man, hanging out with blues explosion and Anthony Bourdain, that must have been insane. Yeah, it was fun. Oh my gosh. So I think I, at the very end of the night, I think I fell into a bag of garbage on the street, and then they had to like pull me out of it. I think that was that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> so, uh, when did the the desire to start writing more normal music come back to you? You know, I, yeah. So that that that's a pretty wild progression. Uh, you know, from where I started with from the Gun Bunnies um, in, in the late in the late eighties, and then going through skeleton key and then going through all this sort of sampling and, and beat making. And, and then I, uh, I moved to Woodstock and, and I bought a house in 2000 and moved here and to Woodstock. And, uh, somewhere along the way, I, I bought a, an acoustic guitar and I remembered that, Oh yeah, I really like to write songs, you know, uh, these little ditties and i started you know it was around the time my son was born and i i I just i think i just you know spent a lot of time just you know finger picking and 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 suddenly songs started appearing and and uh yeah it was it was really kind of a, a revelation for me and i was like oh yeah right i need to go back to this and and I've got stories to tell, and you know, I so I started digging down and started pulling these things out, and 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 I realized I was making a record, and before I knew it, Arkansas Summer, my first record, was was done, and um, and and then I and then I you know then I started on this new one, and and, and that which has just gotten finished. Yeah, and, and so obviously you still had more stories to tell, and one of the interesting <laughs> things that I discovered in listening to both of them is more so on Arkansas Summer, but even even on the, the new uh, album, the uh, you use some audio clips that sound like there's some old vintage clips. Um, yeah, my family, yeah. Yeah, it, it, um, where did you find it? Is that actual vintage audio from... from- uh, it's, uh, it's voicemails from back when we had, like, actual voicemail technology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, like, like cassette, like, like a vo- an answering machine. And I, I, I would get these calls from my family or, uh, and I would, uh, I would just sort of keep those things around. Uh, the, some of the, some of the ones, uh, that I use, there's one particular tape that's really interesting that that was recorded in in the 70s and my aunt interviewed my grandfather and my grandmother i think she probably had one of these like cosmopolitan 
1970s like self-help things of like interview your parents here's 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 uh, 20 questions to ask your parents or <laughs> or something uh that's what she told me at least and and so she uh she recorded her uh my, my grandfather's from beirut lebanon and and he had you know he's broken english and you know he's uh, culturally just very uh, uh very alien to to um the South, especially where, where we grew up. Right. Yeah. And, um, and she, and my grandmother was also very, uh, uh, she was, she was also culturally, you know, challenged in that she was real from a very, very small town in Arkansas called Wonderview and on a farm with like 13 brothers and sisters. And, um, uh, and had or 12 i can't remember exactly and and you know so she my anyway my aunt who was you know had grown up in a flower child in the 60s and was asking them these questions and she made this cassette tape and somehow i ended up with that cassette and it's just always it's a little bit of a gold mine for just hearing them respond to these so i used it on the first record and i used it on the second record too yeah and, and it's 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 really cool. I really like those little, little vignettes of of the family. I mean, it, it's really personal. What is, now? What the the actual the song KJ Jamel? What is what is going on in that? Yeah. Yeah, so she, she's asked him to sing a song and um, and he, uh, sing a song, you know, she's like, sing a song like you used to sing when we were kids, uh, like from the old country. Okay. And and so he starts singing this, um, it, it was a, a Lebanese folk song. I think it was a fairly popular song. Uh, we uh, can't remember the name of it, but it was... Uh, so yeah, he was just, he, I guess he, he, I grew up hearing him sing and play flute a little bit and that's, yeah, that's basically what that was. He, he just took off singing on that. Okay. Okay. Now learning a little bit of the backstories of some of these songs, it's, I honestly, I don't really know how you wrote some of these songs because some of them are about some really tragic incidents like uh walking through water and mm -hmm. cause and effect and mm -hmm. it's I, I i don't i i admire how you're able to take what happened in those songs and, and turn it not only turn it into songs but know that you're going to have to talk about it later or mm. you know, sing the songs in front of people I and mean, that's that to me is incredibly brave and i don't i i, I don't know that i could do something like that the song Walking Through Water is about your brother who recently passed away. Right, and, yeah. And Cause and Effect is about a car accident you were in uh, in which one of your best friends passed away. Yeah, yeah. So was it difficult with so much time passing with the, the car accident? And your brother passed away f pretty recently. So Yeah, the, well, my the, the, the Cause and Effect... The one that where my friend Wade uh, was died in the car wreck that I was in the car with him, he um, that would happen so long ago, and I had often thought about that and and you know it was it was nothing there was nothing there for me to to that I could that I could really write about it. it it was too forever it just seemed like impossible to write about that right um and when i was working on this record and i started writing things down i, I took a writing class where i was not not writing songs but just just doing some writing okay and and that sort of opened up that a little bit and allowed me to kind of that's that's that song is is written I wanted to write it as, in, like almost like factual, just as write as many just facts down as I, facts as I possibly could. Not, not get too sentimental about any of it. Just let it, you know, uh, 
talk about what the actual day looked like to me in terms of, uh, up to that moment and as we lost control and I was reaching for the door as it began to fall no You know, and it's been a really long time. It's you know that record was '81 or '82 when that happened. So, um, you know, enough time has gone by. With with walking through the water, that song, um, I actually wrote that song before my brother passed away, uh, and he was still going in and out of rehabs at that point. And that's kind of what that song was about. And then before the record came out he he um he passed away before the before that i didn't actually finish the song until after he was gone but um okay. it did it um i doubt i would have probably have written that song after that um that that song is probably not written yet uh and it'll be something i i i think about for a really long time but um yeah, that that song that I did write was actually written during that process of of watching him kind of go in and out of rehabs and and struggling with addiction and you let it get to you all head shake, all hearts break, all hands wave goodbye. I'm go round, you slow it down. And uh, it was almost written more for my mother in, in some ways because uh, she was his biggest advocate to try to help him get through stuff. And so, well, that's that's one of my favorite songs on the album. And the the music is so beautifully arranged uh, and you've got things like the song wasn't concerned you, you've got gorgeous strings on that and then there's a peter frampton comes back and does a, a voice box guitar solo on it it, it just comes out, <laughs> out of nowhere it's amazing i loved it yeah I, my 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 joke uh, to 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 everybody is that i is like if you want to have a hit song, put a talk box on it. That's yeah. that's how you have a hit song. Because <laughs> the, the the only my only familiarity with talk boxes is basically hit songs. It's like you know it was a uh, you know tell me something good by Shaka Khan or you know do you feel like we do Peter Frampton that one you Bon Jovi know? song whatever the there's one that... a, there's there's a Bon Jovi song with a talk box in it yeah. Um... Living on a Prayer, I think, has it, doesn't it? That's got a talk box in it? Yeah, I think Richie Sambor has got the... the whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, yeah! There you go. Yeah. 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 Want a hit song? Put a talk box on it. Exactly. You, you uh, just I've... broken the code. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I broke something besides the code with that. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't think. I don't think this is the next. Uh, do you feel like we do? But maybe I should uh, do this entire show with a talk box. Yeah, <laughs> and then I'll get like Joe Rogan numbers. Well, I got that talk box because we were doing an episode of Bob's Burgers, and they wanted uh, Doctor Yap. Uh, apparently, plays a talk box, and they were like, uh, "Do you guys have a talk box?" And I was like, I, at that point, I didn't have a talk box. And I was like, "If you're giving me an excuse to go out and buy a talk box, <laughs> say no more." I'm, I'm on it. Yeah. And, uh, I immediately got a talk box, and, and then that was that. <laughs> well, it's so cool because it, it's – I'm hearing these beautiful strings, and then all of a sudden the talk box comes in on it. It was just really awesome. And that's one of the awesome things about this whole album is that you've got these great, beautiful arrangements. and like They're, they're like George Martin-esque arrangements, and then this incredible guitar solo – this wild, fuzzed-out guitar comes in and plays this amazing solo. And then it just goes back no, to this beautiful song. No, it's, thanks. But what I really, really love about it is that the songs are stories. It's not, um, 
and I hate to use the word you know throwaway lyrics or anything like that, but it's not it's not a typical pop song. It's not it's more along the lines of what uh, like a Springsteen or Neil Young would do, where they tell a story, and it's to me it sounds kind of like you take the Stray Gators and you mix in some Crazy Horse, and then you've, <laughs> you've got your album. So maybe you're like. 77 Neil Young, where he had the Santa Monica Flyers with Nils Lofgren. Maybe that's what yeah. I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that uh, that song started out as a is kind of a of a, like a, a song inspired by the Great American Songbook, you know, like a Cole Porter kind of thing. And I'd I'd written it for my wife, and as sort of a, just a personal thing. And, and 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 but it's dark because it's it's basically I don't the, the song doesn't doesn't talk about zombies but uh, in my mind while I'm singing it there's I'm surrounded by zombies <laughs> and uh, and so you know oh, you would never know that unless I told you but that that's exactly I, I just envisioning a world like. Um, uh, kind of like zombie uh, zombie land a little bit and woody harrelson is like you know you're you're singing a love song but at the same time you're just basically running from like the apocalypse is just like hot on your heels well now that's what's going to be in my head every time i hear that song <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's awesome. I love it. Now, are you planning on playing live or touring to support the album at all? Um, a little bit. I'll do. I'm going to do some regional stuff. I'm going to. Uh, uh, I've got shows around here uh, in uh, the Northeast and Boston, and uh, I'll probably play Providence and, and of course New York City and and locally where I live. And then I'll. Um, I'm looking to play down. I got a show in Arkansas and um, I'll hit some of the places like Memphis and maybe Nashville. Oh, cool. And so, you know, do some, I'll do some regional stuff. I won't do a lot. I might go out to LA if I do some, if I do some work out there uh, and, and do a few shows out there, but, um, but that's, you know, not extensive. Well, where can people find the album? Uh, how can they order it? At, uh, and uh, find the out what you yeah, it's on maxrecordings.com and you can you can go to uh, uh, the label that I'm on and uh, which is based out of Arkansas and buy directly from there or you can go to iTunes or you can listen to it on Spotify or uh, the vinyl is coming out um, next month and uh, we're taking pre-orders now so people can pre-order the record and uh, get a down code, a download code immediately, and then um, and then get uh, a nice little black, round, shiny disc. That's and awesome. It's really, I have to say, it's worth it's worth it. A, a wonderful writer, Janet Steen, wrote some liner notes. I wanted to have an old school record where you could sit down, put the record on, hold the record cover, and actually read something for like ten minutes. Thank you. So, so it's. Uh, I think that's very, very much lost. And, and, and also all the lyrics on the inside of the record, if you buy the vinyl, and it talks about all the players it played on. And I have some amazing players, people like Cindy Cashdollar and Amy Helm and Zach Janikian and Jesse Murphy and Aaron Johnson and Jeff Lipstein. I've just, and, Rachel Yamagata, and, who I love. Rachel Yamagata, yeah. Uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, wonderful people. Mark Sedgwick just – great players uh that i'm just super lucky to to live in a place um like where where i do where you know there's just so many of those great players that they tend to congregate in woodstock don't they that tends to be like a a magnet for for some great musicians yeah 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 the uh you uh you really you you can't swing a dead cat and not hit a uh hit, hit an awesome uh, world-class musician in this town now are you on any uh, uh the social media sites where people can follow you 
uh yeah goat house studio is uh my instagram and um you know just chris maxwell i think it's chris maxwell songs is my facebook page okay yeah so yeah and you know i think awesome. chris a maxwell is my twitter uh thing I, I never really do that but i i think i feed my twitter by t- basically doing an instagram post and then shooting it out to everything else so. yeah 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 i mean it's it's all a very foreign thing to me but uh but it, it, you know i live in the woods so it, it kind of helps for me to stay in touch with people <laughs> a little bit so well i used to be a photographer so i love instagram so i will yeah i will check you out on instagram uh, i'll give yeah. you a follow this evening oh cool yeah so yeah uh, I, used to, I used to play dc when skeleton he played a lot like uh black cat and yeah. The 930. And, uh, 930 and yeah we uh girls against boys and prime i mean uh helmet and oh yeah uh, the melvins and oh. uh god i mean we played with so many so many awesome bands brainiac shudder to think um See, and you're those. touring right in, in the heyday for me anyway like the the mid 90s i mean i that was that's, that was insane. We did the last tour with with Brainiac, Brainiac and Shudder to Think. Oh, oh man, I love Shudder to Think. Shudder to Think is awesome. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with Brainiac. I'll have to check that out. Check it out. That just a documentary just came out on them. Oh, really? Uh, that, yeah, that's it's pretty mind blowing. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, really great. Well, man, thank you so much for spending the evening with me. I, I've kept you for a little over an hour now, so yeah, I will let you go and, and have the rest of your evening. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great getting to know you. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Mark, and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. This is how the sun turns blue And you feel the ground beneath you roll Like a wave of heartbreak in your soul You're desperate, nothing to do This is how the song turns blue And it flows through everything A thunder and a whispering Tangled up in brackish green I make my own color scheme So I can keep my heart beating It's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 